Ooh, I'm finally back. I have been working a full-time job and hosting two podcasts and then, you know, life, always life. Anyway, I'm back for a while. Season three of Grit, getting real immersed in truth. There are some storms hovering around me here. Any prayers you want to offer, I will take them and I appreciate them. And my peeps, thank you for your patience. And just so you know, listeners, I'm praying for you too. All right, on with the show. Our guest today is Celeste Henderson. Before we get into the conversation, I want to dedicate this episode to Celeste's father, who passed away on February 1st, 2022. Celeste is a testament to his strength, intelligence, character, love of music, and love for God. Please keep Celeste and her family in your prayers. Now, on to the show. I'm born and raised in England, but my heritage is from the Caribbean. Going to school, where most of the time I was in the minority, but my home life was very quite Caribbean, many Black British. When looking at the world and looking at some of the situations where racism has become so entrenched and unchallenged, people living here, we do feel very strongly connected with Black people in America because we experience similarities. It has made me think, where is the church? The church should be doing something about this. If we, the church, respond and face this, we will start to see change when it's a massive sin that's embedded in our systems. But if we don't speak, it will continue and we're failing to bring about justice. It was quite interesting to see that a lot of what was happening in America was happening in Britain too. A lot of black British people also do have a background of slavery because we're from the Caribbean and we were there as slaves. So we, we carry the same sort of similar trauma from slavery as well. Our national curriculum here in the schools, it hasn't changed since I was in school. The only time that really in history black people were mentioned was slaves. Mm. Nothing else really around contributions that we've made to the world. But there's a movement now in the UK where people are pointing out black people have been here for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And there are actually black British heroes. Getting Real, Immersed in Truth, Intersecting Hard Conversations with the Gospel. We seek and speak the truth about what's going on around us. I'm your host, Rabrina Rettle. Today we're talking about the parallels of the American and the British Black experience with my guest, Celeste Henderson. Born and raised in London, UK, by immigrants from the Federation of St. Kitts Nevis, Celeste is a wife mother, and educator, who is currently residing with her husband and 10-year-old daughter in South London. A qualified teacher by profession, she is also the director of the Sanctuary International, a ministry that seeks to provide safe spaces for women to encounter God and his healing. 
Celeste is a master facilitator in the classic adult trauma healing program with the Trauma Healing Institute, as well as an active worship leader in her local church. Enjoys reading novels, listening to music, and traveling. Her heart is to see God's people healed and restored to enable them to flourish in their relationship with God and impacting their world through the use of their God-given gifts. Thanks for joining us today, Celeste. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. Thank you. Okay, so Celeste and I met in a, it was generational trauma yeah. healing group. And the generational trauma healing group focuses on racial trauma, mm-hmm. how racial trauma affects both blacks and whites, and how it has affected from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Yeah. Why don't you tell us your story? I'm born and raised in England, but my heritage is from the Caribbean. So both of my parents are from the Caribbean, but I've been born and raised in London, England. So what part of the Caribbean? You know, I'm trying to get there. Okay. So the small island's called St. Kitts, St. Kitts Nevis. It's a federation, one of the smallest islands, very beautiful. And both of my parents are actually from St. Kitts and the island of St. Kitts. Wow. Yeah. I'm trying to get to the Caribbean. So you're welcome to come. I'll take you there. (laughs) That sounds great. You know, I told my kids, both of them want to leave Lincoln. I said, when y'all go, I'm out. And I said, I'm going to go someplace that's going to be a vacation spot for you, but I'm going to live there. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Yeah. So it'll work out for them. I'm trying to get to the warmth and the sun and the beach Yes, definitely consider St. Kitts. One of the things that we talked about in our many conversations that Celeste and I have had since we have this sisterhood going, and one of the things that we spoke about was the experience of Black Americans as compared to the experience of Black Britons. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, what your upbringing was like. Okay, so as I said, I have been, I was in London in the late 70s, Um, the youngest in a family, so I have two older sisters living in South London, and both of my parents, as I said, have Caribbean heritage, so I grew up in a home that was quite mixed, we were living in London, England, and I was in many ways, so in terms of the food we ate, the music we listened to, and the standards that we would be set. Our parents very much raised us as Caribbean children. So going to school was interesting. I think I've always been used to, probably from birth, having to have a bit of a hybrid existence. So having one culture at home, but another culture in the outside world. And sometimes that conflict being conflicting, sometimes resenting my home culture because it doesn't seem to match the outside culture. Mm. Um, And definitely struggling with identity. So um, really struggling to find out where I fitted in. Things had improved somewhat by the time that I was born for us as Blacks living in London, but there was still definitely racism. 
And there was that sense of not really being welcome or not really quite fitting in, especially having a different culture. But when I was seven, my mum took me on a trip to St. Kitts and I just loved it. And that was a really important trip in helping me to start to connect with my identity. Mm. But it left me in a limbo because over there they kept calling me English. And back here in London, they were asking me, where do you come from? And didn't really consider me being from either place. So I spent a lot of time really struggling with identity, trying to decide where do I belong? Am I British? Am I Catitian? As it seemed that both people groups didn't really seem to consider me part of their group. So it was an interesting upbringing, definitely faced some racism, very rarely overt, but I have definitely had abuse shouted out at me walking on the streets, but most of it has been more covert. So different behaviours, different treatment in the classroom, in the workplace and that sort of thing. Microaggressions. Is- Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a question about accents, because mm-hmm. I understand in England, people can tell where you're from according to your accent. Yes. So I have a London accent, but even across London, you can have slightly different accents. But as you move further up north within the country, you start to hear different accents. So northern accents sort of in Birmingham, Newcastle, there are actually quite a few accents that are across the UK. So I can't um, even try to pretend to have the different accents, but definitely we can tell a marked difference. You can hear from someone when they're living in it, have come from a different part of the UK. The Welsh have a different accent as do also the Scottish. Um, yeah, I asked that question because you said people would ask, where are you from? To me, it, it's interesting that they were asking where you were from, but you had a London accent. Mm-hmm. So basically because of the way you look is why they were asking where you're from because you have brown skin yeah absolutely that you have the accent but you're still not considered from there even though born and raised and you have the accent but because of your skin color they would ask where are you from yes and yeah and, and and I think that does automatically send a message from very young that you don't belong that they don't consider you to really be from here perhaps it'd be different if they asked where's you know you know where's your heritage from mm-hmm. um but I definitely was I was younger had conversations where they'd say where are you from and I'd say the town I'd been born in and they'd say no where are you from and then realizing oh you mean where are my parents from they're from the Caribbean they're from St Kitts and then they'd ask you where is that is that in Jamaica or Africa Mm. so really having no concept of where you're from so also being from such a small island that was another dimension where there was a lot of ignorance even about the Caribbean islands mm-hmm. and even about the different African countries. Yeah, it was a very strong message that because of the way I looked, it opened up a conversation about where are you really from? And often people not accepting that I might actually consider myself to be from London. Right. Yes. yes. I, I just find it interesting also because you said they only asked about the two places, Africa yes. or Jamaica. Like those are the only two places I know where Black people would come from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That is something. Okay. So that is a similarity and a difference there. Because mm. uh, a lot of time with Blacks are in America, if you speak like I speak, 
they know okay you know, she, she's from america somewhere she's from one of the states yeah so it, it would not dawn on them to ask me based on my skin color well of course our, our history which is the true history is now coming to light although people are trying to fight it there are some things that is universally known, you know, chattel slavery, and that most Black Americans come from enslaved uh, people. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to speak for myself. I shouldn't say most. I'm going to say I know my family came from enslaved people. And so, mm-hmm. so anyway, that, that that's already like that kind of the basic guide there. And then yes. kind of build your questions on that basic guide. But it's interesting that in, in England, even though you have that accent, they're still asking you, where are you from? Anyway, that just uh, is very fascinating <laughs> to me. Well, one of the things that we talked about, like there was something else you said about your uh, upbringing and you, you talked about when you, when you were between two cultures, because mm-hmm. the majority culture, because that happens here in the States too, majority culture has a way of kind of bleeding into everything. And then you have your own culture from within your household. Although some people are just realizing that black people in the States actually do have culture. I had someone tell me, I was talking about culture and I had someone ask me what culture as if I didn't have culture, Mm. (laughs) like, like her, like, basically we're all the same culture. And I was like, no, we're not. Mm. And, And it was odd because she had a family that celebrated their ethnicity. There were like certain things they would do around the holidays that was part of their ethnicity that they would celebrate. And so yeah. I thought it was so odd. I was like, but wait, you do, you know, you have culture because you celebrate certain things about your ethnicity, but then you think I don't have culture. Um, like I'm supposed to just latch on to whatever. Mm. Okay, so like us around the holidays, there was there were certain foods that we would eat. So greens, oven baked mac and cheese. Yeah. And then of course for for here Thanksgiving turkey, but then for a Christmas or Easter, we'd have ham. And then there was a certain way my mom made the ham. You'd stick the clothes yes. around a pineapple on top. You of course put your marriage cherries and you mix your little sauce with a little bit of the brown sugar and the pineapple juice and you pour it on the ham or cornbread because we always had cornbread with our greens. So anyway, there were certain foods that we would eat, which we call soul food. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it derived from the South. And uh, some people put um, vinegar on their greens. Other people put hot sauce on their greens. I like a combo. Anyway, so (laughs) talk to me about some of the culture or heritage that you all celebrated in your home, food or whatever else. So I think for us, food was probably the biggest differentiator. Christmas dinner, because obviously we don't have Thanksgiving here. Our big meal would be Christmas dinner. And yes, we would have a turkey. But whereas perhaps my school friends would be having... I guess, roast potatoes and various things like that. We'd be having rice and peas. We'd have curry goat along with the turkey. We'd have our baked macaroni cheese as well. We'd have our ham. So yeah, the food around the table would be very different. So it was it was a combination. We'd have some traditional British um, foods, which I think my mum added over time. Um, because obviously my mum and dad weren't raised in London they emigrated there so over time I think our some of our food became sort of merged with a few English dishes thrown in Mm -hmm. um but it was still a very Caribbean meal so even 
aside from sort of Christmas dinner, which would probably look more like Christmas dinner back home in the Caribbean, even just standard Sunday dinner and then taking leftovers into school on the Monday and people asking you, what have you done to your chicken? Because we would have, it would have been seasoned and, or marinated and, and all of those conversations. And those were all things that, I'll be honest, sometimes I felt a bit embarrassed because, you know, you were different and everyone would say, oh, you know, what are you eating? Yes. Um, and that sort of, so wow. things like... Yeah, the smell, smell. what's that smell? Mm -hmm. And then even things like having parties and we do our party food, fried plantain and various things like that. And then your friend's saying, why are you frying bananas? And then you'd feel a bit even embarrassed about the party food that you would have. So yeah, there was that, there was always learning how to exist across the two was always quite interesting. And sometimes going to a friend's birthday party and seeing things on the plate you haven't seen before, because we don't eat that in our home so yes I think it did at times it felt I guess in teenage years you might have felt a bit embarrassed because you didn't feel like you fitted in but definitely as I'm older I really appreciate my parents maintaining that heritage for us mm -hmm. um, because I think it did help to ground us in our identity it gave us some sort of anchor points to hold on to of this is part of of who I am mm. when you're in a when you're the minority and you're trying to fi find yourself in the midst of that. Same with music, certain traditions in our house. There'd always be some Caribbean music playing on a Saturday night. There'd always be certain gospel music playing on a Sunday morning. And then going back home, seeing that's just the tradition. You'll hear music blaring out on a Saturday night. You'll hear music um, blaring out on a Sunday morning. So all of those little things. When you went to St. Kitts, you saw the same thing? Absolutely. Yeah. So not appreciating that until going to St. Kitts seeing oh okay this is actually something that we do so I think having parents who did keep up hold on to those habits and those traditions definitely helped but I think as well as parents they were somewhat limited in knowing how to support because there were some identity issues that would come up for us as children living in a minority, but they would never have experienced because they grew up where everybody was like them. Mm. Um, so they were very aware of it because they also faced some awful racism themselves. But I think it was quite tough for them to know how to support and parent us in the, as we were trying to straddle two worlds whilst trying to find ourselves. Mm -hmm. Wow, I could imagine. Actually, I couldn't imagine trying to figure out what's going on in my uh, children's world. And I hadn't experienced myself before and how uh, to support my kids in that. Yeah, it had to be tough. Mm -hmm. It was something you told me a story about when you went to college and you had a roommate that was so impressed by you. Yes. That you made it there. <laughs> yes. Can you share that story with our listeners? Sure. So here in the UK, we call college university. And after completing my schooling, I got into probably one of the top universities in the country, a very well-known one, and moved into halls. I don't know if you guys call it halls, but that's yeah. where this, mm -hmm. right, yeah, so moved in. I was sharing the room with a Scottish girl, actually. We'd just been put together and had a very interesting conversation sort of maybe the second or third night there where she as we were trying to get to know each other sat down and congratulated me for doing so well 
and me not really understanding what she was talking about and her explaining that I had done really well to get into university considering black people had significantly lower IQs than white people and so I must have done really really well to get in I think what startled me, because I had seen an article that had come out around that time claiming that, but I think what startled me was that I think she actually thought she complimented me and that this was a way to bond with me rather than seeing how offensive it, it was. And one thing I do regret was not actually challenging her. I think I was so shocked. I just sort of nodded and, and smiled, <laughs> um, not quite knowing where to go with it, but wishing I'd actually sort of challenged and pulled her up on it. And I think going to university, even though I had experienced racism before, I think it was probably at university that I really started to experience some of the things maybe I'd heard my older sisters talking about and really started to see some of the stark differences in treatment at university. And that was a real wake-up call because I think even though I was in the minority, I don't think any of my white school mates would have ever have dared to say that to me but for her she felt that this was a way to bond with her black roommate so yeah a few other assumptions but yeah it was that was quite startling and obviously yeah extremely insulting because right. <laughs> so I'd worked really hard to get there rightly so and to hear that you know I had to struggle with a lower IQ was interesting to say the right. least. Mm-hmm. She's uh, stuck with this uh, stereotype or, like you said, the uh, assumption. Wow. So one of the things we talked about is after 2020, the racial awakening. Mm-hmm. Again, we've had several wish- racial awakening. This one seemed to really cause a shift around the world. It was the murder of George Floyd. And we were talking about just how it reverberated globally. And you all, you said that it was a big shift there in England also when you all saw that. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what that did for uh, the Black community there and for you all personally? Yeah, so I think one of the things I'd like to say first is that something that may or may not be appreciated is definitely... I can only speak for myself, but I know for me and many Black British people living here, we do feel very strongly connected with Black people in America because we experience similarities. So a lot of the things that we see you guys go through, we're experiencing it the same. It may not be as publicised. The murder of George Floyd and all of that really resonated strongly because we've had our own situations over here where unfortunately Black men and women have died due to police brutality. So it hit really hard. For me personally, it, it opened up a lot of many wounds. You know, it, this is, it wasn't a new thing, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but it struck really deep. Perhaps it was the pandemic. Perhaps it was the fact that everything had slowed down and stopped and that it wasn't as easy to look away. Mm. But definitely in our household, it, it shook us significantly. And it had reverberations across the whole nation. So there were riots and marches here in the UK. There were tearing down of statues of old slave owners that had been um, up for years in various parts across the UK. Just real, a real, I say awakening, because likewise, we've had riots, race riots here as well before, but it did hit hard in people saying, actually, we need to see a change. And as someone who has seen the impact of maybe about two or three race riots in my lifetime. The George Floyd murder 
I think really opens up more conversations than I've seen before. Mm. So this was the first time I was sitting in the workplace and the workplace were actually talking about how can we move from just not just saying we you know we we want racial equality but how can we be anti-racist what are the things that we need to change and implement and i think for me it it helps me to recognize how much i've been carrying emotionally and how much trauma i've been carrying as a black person here because i do i think one major turning point was in my meeting where at work I mean, my manager, who's a white woman, wanted to address this. And as one of the senior members of the team, she asked me how to go about it. You know, she wanted to she wanted to address it with the team, but without without it being a tokenistic way. But I could not at that point, I couldn't even I couldn't help her. I directed her to other members of the team, Mm -hmm. but she handled it really beautifully. She acknowledged it. And I think what struck her, but also struck me, was how many of our team were weeping. And it felt like as a black employee for the first time, there was someone who was acknowledging what we experience on a daily basis Mm. and sitting there crying in a meeting at work, which was (laughs) quite a shock for me, helps me to realize that actually there's a lot that you carry when you grow in the environment that we grow in, where Mm. you have constant messages that tell you you don't belong, that you're not of value, that you're not intelligent, that you don't count. And that eventually takes its toll. And I think the murder of George Floyd brought that up to the surface for many people. And I'm still seeing the effects now. There's much more people challenging issues in schools, in workplaces and expecting change, which is really positive. So, yeah, I guess it's just for people to know that it really did. It really has changed lives for people over here as well and raised some really interesting conversations. The, the time right after for, for us, it was, you know, there was several in a row, several murders in the row and then George Floyd was kind of like the the tipping point and so I can imagine though like that like it's like if you touch a wound and the wound is not healed you jerk your hand away because it still hurts so I can imagine that even though you know she was your boss was trying to uh, do something good just how how raw you know, how raw it was still and how difficult that can be. Yeah, a lot that was going around a lot. That was going around a lot. Yes. And it was happening in churches also, some churches. Unfortunately, though, some people, they would hear it and it, they want a temporary fix. You know, like, let's put a little Band-Aid on it and move on. And so, yeah, that, that, that caused a lot of what they call the Black exodus, a lot of Black people leaving multicultural uh, churches because it wasn't really going to be addressed in a true change, but in a, a let's just do this and make it look better and make yes. you feel better for the first five minutes and then we'll just go back to normal kind of thing. Yeah, I think it, for me, it raised it raised also the church issue for me because I think, yeah, it raised a lot for me as well in terms of what's the Christian response. I actually posted a video on Facebook of a few days after it happens, which is me sharing my thoughts because I found myself not quite knowing what was the Christian response to this because it felt historically I've always had always been taught just to forgive and move on, but not knowing what to do with the rage, the anger and the pain. And I think I went through quite an angry stage of actually feeling that perhaps the church has not has not addressed racism the way that it needs to. I think forgiveness is very important, but if it's true love, then there also needs to be the teaching about justice. 
Mm. And justice is love. Mm. It's justice is love in terms of helping those who are suffering at the hands of injustice, Mm. but also helping those who are feeling that it's okay to operate in that way. If we really love our brothers and sisters, we need to let them know when they're doing wrong. And so, yeah, I think I I feel like the church is supposed to have the answer. We are, this is a heart issue. Racism is a heart issue. Mm. And we serve a God who deals with the heart. Mm. And if we're not talking about it and addressing it appropriately, more than putting a bandaid over it, then society really hasn't got a chance. Mm. So for me, I did feel when looking at the world, and looking at some of the situations where racism has become so entrenched and unchallenged, mm. it, it has made me think, where is the church? The church should be doing something about this. Mm-hmm. If, if we, the church, respond and face this, we will start to see change. But at the moment, I think many of us are trying to avoid it when it's a massive sin that's embedded in our systems. But if we don't speak, it will continue and we're failing to bring about justice. Right. I agree with you. We are in agreement. Today's Black Business Shoutout is for a magazine Celeste and I both subscribe to, Coco Girl Magazine. Inspired by her daughter, founder Serlina launched the UK's first magazine to celebrate Black girls, Coco Girl, giving Black children a voice whilst educating the community about the Black culture. Coco is an educational tool that teaches children about Black culture while profiling Black role models. This magazine helps to build a strong community for young Black girls and boys who are often misrepresented by mainstream media. Coco has won the Newcomer Award at the Independent Awards 2020 and the Launch of the Year in 2020. They've even presented issues dedicated to Black hair, and they had one to celebrate Black Boy Joy. I got this information from their website, and you can find more about Coco Girl by going to their website, cocogirl.com. I will put their link in the show notes. You should check it out. Back to the show. Was it August or September? September of 2020, when we started the trauma healing group. It might have been October. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, it was was on the tail end that we became members of the trauma, generational trauma healing group. And so Mm -hmm. the timing for that group, for me, was perfect because there was still a lot that I was wrestling with in that time that also had to do with the church. Mm-hmm. And, and then just the healing of how long have we been enduring and how long do we have to endure? And, you know, when, when are we going to be able to speak on it where people are listening, which I do think now, I think a lot of people are listening more now than they were yeah. before. And then I think also that the white people who want to become anti-racist and yeah. um, allies are uh, stepping in more and understanding how to, to use their privilege. There was a situation where my son went to he went to a little gathering and this late, I guess they were loud or playing the music. And there was a lot of, there was different ethnicities that were together, Black, Latino, and white, Asian. 
mm-hmm. which to me is a beautiful. I just love that the friend, the friend group was looking like that. I just love it. But anyway, the, they got loud and someone came to them with her phone and told, told them, I'm recording you and you're being too loud and you know, all this stuff. And then one of his friends who was white was the first one to step to the front and he went straight to the lady and he started talking to her as as he was did not want his friends to get the brunt of whatever it is whatever it was she was about to bring he came to the front and i was like wow that is very interesting that he felt the need to say hey you know everything everything's cool we don't we're not trying to start any trouble you know what what's going on here you know to find out from her so that the, the other friends automatically she wouldn't get up in their face and think you know whatever would happen and so i thought that was interesting and i'm i'm thinking now that um especially in the younger generation, that they're starting to understand that. But they have to be careful to understand it in a way that let's not get the white savior complex, because that is a that is a problem too. Yes, absolutely. You know, where you feel like I have to come save the day and I'm doing such a wonderful thing and I'm going to pat myself on the back. Now, this young man, I know him and he's not like that. He has a very sincere heart. Uh, but is, that is something to be aware of. But I do think it's good now that uh, people are talking about it and they are um, understanding the action. There's action that needs to, to take place. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the most hopeful I've felt so far about seeing things moving because I do think there are people, more people taking on board on what's being said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the healing, because like I said, we were in that trauma healing group and it was a, it was a very interesting group. I think we got pretty close, but all like black and white, because I, I think we just really bared our experiences and some learned things they didn't know. And me, uh, as the black person, I learned some things about white people that I didn't know, in particular, white women who were married to s- another ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So not just black, but black or Asian, Latino, mm-hmm. and their experiences in raising children of color yeah, and how they may not have experienced uh, racism before in their life until now. Mm-hmm. And so what an eye-opener it, it is for them. That was interesting for me. Mm, yeah I really enjoyed that healing group I think it was just nice to have somewhere to at least start to unpick and discuss something but for me I didn't I'd never had a space to do that in a Christian setting in sort of a Christian framework and I think we did get very and it was nice to be heard you know one of the things we say about trauma healing is the importance of having a voice and being heard and it was nice that everyone was heard both black and white were able to talk about their experience and I think that helped us to bond because we began to appreciate each other's side or where each of us were coming from in much more, yeah, with greater understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was an amazing experience for me. I mean, for me, it was running at midnight till 3 a.m. my time. So that just shows how 
I really valued, you know, <laughs> that I wanted to be part of this group because it was the only thing that I could see or find that was actually going to help me to start processing in a safe space mm. some of what I was thinking and feeling. So, yeah, I, it was a really rich experience. I met some amazing people like you, but also it was just, yeah, it was, it was nice to be able to share and also, I guess, to bring a British perspective because I think for some uh, members, they hadn't maybe thought about or you know thought about the fact that, that, that us over here okay. we're feeling the same thing I mean when we did the timeline there was activity when we did the timeline to look at the history along the way and it was quite interesting to see that a lot was of what was happening in America was happening in Britain too mm-hmm. um you may not have had the same names of the different groups but mm-hmm. black British people really have been walking alongside in similar experiences and um, a lot of black British people also do have a background of slavery because we're from the right. Caribbean and we right. were there as slaves. So we we carry the same sort of similar trauma from slavery as well. Mm-hmm. And and now living in the UK, experiencing being in the minority. So I want to touch on your healing work into uh, facilitating healing groups. But there was two other things I wanted to uh, touch on first. One was we had talked about Black history and the Black history in England, because you you said that a, a lot of times you all would learn on your own about the Black history of America, because they didn't really teach anything about Black history in England. Right. So it's interesting, because as we're recording this, it's Black History Month in the UK at the moment. And... Yes, most of the time, Black History Month, most of the people that are brought forward are Black Americans. So in our national curriculum here in the schools, it hasn't changed since I was in school. The only time that really in history Black people were mentioned was slaves. Mm. And so as a Black student, the only time you heard about people that looked like you were slaves who eventually, you know, white people helped to save and release from slavery and nothing else really around contributions that we've made to the world. So I think what's interesting, I'm still on a journey because Mm. I do know a fair amount of black history, but I'm very aware that most of the black heroes I have are American black heroes. So even my daughter who's nine has had a lesson today on black history and she's telling me about Rosa Parks, you know, that the same heroes that you have are the ones that we are holding on to as well. But there's a movement now in the UK where people are pointing out black people have been here for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And there are actually black British heroes. So that's the journey I'm trying to go on and starting to discover some of the black British heroes who may have had a more similar background to me, mm-hmm. who have contributed to the society here. But that's still very much we have to search out and find for our ourselves Mm. and I think as a mother there's a challenge of wanting to encourage my daughter but I don't know it myself so if I wanted to tell her any black history at the moment it would primarily be American black history Martin Luther King Mm. um, and Malcolm X and various people like that so Mm. it's a journey here but yeah so for me that all of my black history was either my parents teaching me about Caribbean history or what I found out for myself and what was accessible was American Black history. I did hear about that movement that people are kind of digging into archives to see if they can find more about Black history in England and the contributions that Black people have made in England. Yeah. Yes. Thank goodness. And then there was another thing I wanted to touch base on because when you were talking about the experiences, how you all have the similar experiences that we have 
there could be nothing more and in my eyes, nothing more evident of that because of the, how public it was, Harry and Megan. Mm-hmm. And those incidences that occurred that she experienced were like, oh yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> That's kind of like what I was hearing, you know, some of the things that, that she had expressed and even some of the things that the, the media you know, was saying about her strata Compton, you know, whatever, you know, all that stuff. And so it was just kind of like, yeah, it, I have to say for me, although, I, I mean, I thought it was, when they first got engaged, they goes, oh, that's so awesome. Hey, go, go Harry, you know, <laughs> you know, but when all this other stuff started, I have to say it was not a surprise. I wasn't, it wasn't a shock. It wasn't a surprise. It was like, oh, okay, well, we've been waiting on it. <laughs> you know, yeah, they got around to it, you know? So, and then as it, gotten worse and worse and worse and finally she had to um pack her prints and go yes yeah and I think it's likewise for the black British here it wasn't a surprise either so I mean the media over here was really shocking in the midst of all of that they always have been there were articles going around just comparing how the papers would talk about very similar experiences between Kate and um, Megan and how they would vilify one and take a totally different approach but yes we weren't I know that I wasn't surprised I do remember thinking I guess not fearful for her but thinking does she really know what she's getting into because this is not going to be easy right um, really grateful that it seems that they've managed to find a way out hopefully but uh, yeah I think many of us were not surprised so when people were really shocked or this isn't true. I think there are a lot of us who are like, well, yeah. <laughs> so we kind of knew this. This is this is what it's like, unfortunately, to live in Britain. These are the things that we experience on a daily basis. Yeah, um, I was going to say she brought it to the forefront, basically. Like it, mm-hmm. hers was on a larger scale, but mm-hmm. it, for me, it made me it made me think if if this is what she's going through then it has to have, it's got to be the norm. Yeah. You know what I mean? For everyone else. Yes. So uh, yeah, I, it was very unfortunate. I was very sad for her and mm. it was very unfortunate, but I was like, yep, I, I, some of the things that she was talking about, I have heard myself, um, you know, my husband's white and I have heard people say crazy things just like mm. she did. And when she said it, I was like, oh yeah, I believe that. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure somebody said that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but they are still doing great things. Yes. And I applaud them mm-hmm. and uh, pray that they can continue to do great things to yeah. the world. Okay. Let's move on to some of the uh, healing work that you do because you've mm-hmm. actually been doing healing work for some time. And then when we were in the, um, trauma the other trauma healing group you you said that you were like oh wait this is what I've been doing already it just wasn't in this format so the one that we do through American Bible Society Mm -hmm. the trauma healing institute and then what we went through for the generational uh trauma was through quest quest movement movement yeah yes Mm -hmm. yes okay and so you have been putting this healing work into practice for some time but through the facilitation process you made it official so talk talk to us about like kind of how it started and and how you got to where you where your sanctuary is now 
Yeah, so I run an organisation called The Sanctuary International, which actually started back in 2009. And I think I wanted to reach women like me. So when I say women like me, women who on the surface look relatively successful, you know, gone to a really good university, got a great job, but actually have a lot of emotional wounds, a lot of trauma in their past, Mm -hmm. and don't necessarily present as people who have a traumatic background. Mm -hmm. Um, So the aim was really to provide a safe space where women could come together over brunch and just start to explore God's word and experience emotional healing. Mm. So that started in 2009. We do retreats, weekends away, workshops. We've done various different activities. So yes, been doing a lot of emotional healing and mentoring and coaching, helping women to, to really achieve what they feel God is calling them to do. So our aim is to restore, empower and release women into their God-given call. So mm-hmm. for them to be restored into the image that God created them to be, then empowered to discover their gifts and their abilities and their talents and then release to go and impact their world in whatever way God wants them to. So that's what that the sanctuary has been about. And then coming across trauma healing through the Trauma Healing Institute really was, I guess, the some ways the missing bit. It was this awesome curriculum that now that I've incorporated into the work that we just to really I guess, formalize and put a bit more structure into the restoration work that we do. So we continue also to have retreats, experiential retreats, where we seek to just provide safe spaces for people to encounter God, to experience him fully. We're big on encouraging different ways of engaging with God so that you can have a rich personal walk with him. Mm -hmm. So often in our retreats, we'll introduce you to new experiences and new ways of connecting with him in the hope that the women will be able to take that into their walk and their their journey with him. And then we also do mentoring and coaching in helping them to achieve their goals. So it's a great passion. It's something I currently still do on the side whilst working, but it's very much something that I feel is part of the reason why God put me here on earth Mm. Um, and the trauma healing work has been phenomenal and really helping to enrich that work yeah I I know during the pandemic you started something called coffee with CC and you did that in place of the gatherings Mm -hmm. uh, the workshops the retreats and that and that thing but you you, after after the pandemic's still here (laughs) But <laughs> when things calmed down a bit and we were kind of released back out into the wild, so to speak, back out into the world, then you kind of put that on hold or an end. And so now you've, you're picking back up with the Sanctuary International. And in what ways are you, are you have now established what, yes. what you're doing? So one big part is we are running more trauma healing groups, going into churches and doing that. Mm. And then also training facilitators. So helping churches to build their own trauma healing ministries. Mm. In addition, we've, I've started a series of encounter retreats. So we had one in the summer, which was Encounter Hope, an experiential half day retreat where women came together, did crafting, contemplative prayer, different aspects of engaging with God's word to encounter hope 
And we are planning our next one, which is Encounter Joy, which will be happening um, quite soon in the next few weeks. So at the moment, we are running sort of half day retreats. Next year, we're hoping to do a residential healing group. So take women away for a weekend Mm -hmm. and start moving towards more retreats and, and those sort of things. Also during the pandemic, I also ran a coaching program, actually, which is which was looking at discovering who you are, who God's called you to be. So I did do a coaching program for some women, a three months coaching program. And we may revisit that again next year. Oh, wow. That's really great. Okay, so some of your retreat, I mean, some of your uh, trauma healing is in person, but you also do online trauma healing. Is that correct? Because that's the one we took was online, but you're still doing kind of like kind of like a hybrid now. Yeah. So we've just completed doing an in-person healing retreat, healing group. But alongside that, I also had a second group that was online. Mm. So it really depends on what the church needs. Some churches it's over several branches, so online works better. Whereas if it's actually in a local church, then we try and do an in-person experience for them. So yes, we do both online and in person. Yeah, well, that's good. That's pretty cool that you have been doing it since 2009. Mm-hmm. And then you went, because you're all the way, what, what level are you for your facilitation? Um, a master facilitator in training now. Oh, I didn't know that. You're on the master facilitation road. Wow, good for you. So I'm hoping to do an advance next month to hopefully become a master facilitator. Wow, that was fast. You did it fast. Because <laughs> you just kept going. You didn't stop. You, you went no. from facilitator to the advanced facilitator. You just kept going to be able to teach. Wow, good mm-hmm. for you. That's because uh, you had already been doing it for so long. And this was mm-hmm. basically the credential part this is already the missing piece this has been i guess yeah if people want to connect with you how can they connect with you the best way to connect with me would be probably via instagram so it's at underscore celeste henderson underscore we've taken our web sanctuary website down temporarily we're doing a refresh but when that goes back up the website is www.thesanctuaryinternational.com and on there you'll find information about our trauma healing work our retreats our coaching and our mentoring programs and any upcoming events we have well as usual, I love speaking to Celeste. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> hopefully I can, hopefully next year I can come visit you. That's my goal. Be amazing. Thanks Celeste. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I don't know if you could tell, but Celeste, not just a guest or a friend, but she is like a sister to me. We became fast friends during the trauma healing group. You can keep an eye out on her Instagram and you can look into signing up for a healing group. She's taking a break to do some healing herself. And if you could, please keep her family in your prayers. If you enjoyed this episode or if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give Grit, Getting Real, Immersed in Truth, a five-star rating, follow, and share. Getting Real, Immersed in Truth is written, produced, and edited by me, Rabrina Reddle. 
original music by composer Michael Coffey of Handcrafted Studios. Connect with me on Instagram at Rebrinarettle and check out my website, Rebrinarettle.com. I also have another podcast on life audio, Mama Take Heart, Understanding Your Gen Z Girl. It's designed to help mama be the compassionate, gospel-centered, and influential voice in her girl's life. Okay, friends, until next time, keep your head up when being real while immersed in truth.